0: I genuinely believe that that's a place where you see the worst in humanity and you see the most amazing in humanity. People that are so magnanimous, so forgiving, despite immense horrors that they face. So there's a lot to learn there. It's such an intense place. There's so much to learn about the human condition, both how horrible and how cruel it can be, uh, and then see amazing magnanimity and an amazing courage. It's a place where you can learn a lot about the human condition. And like I say, one year there is like five years somewhere else. So that was when I realized that uh, being Palestinian means that you are stateless. I realized that my father's story is my story too, that you are in exile and that you are never permanently anywhere. I've realized that I have a niche in being able to bridge perspectives. My capacity is understanding, empathetically, what is it like to be the other. You start realizing that we're all human beings. And Palestinian, uh, Israeli, Muslim, Christian, these are all colors. But ultimately, all of us, you know, want a good life. We love a good joke.
1: Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation, because, well, it's a mitzvah. I think a lot about storytelling. I remember when I was in high school, and I first realized... That there was a lot of history that never made its way into the textbooks or classroom discussions of my formal history education. It would take some time, but eventually I understood that there's power in determining which narratives are told and which are ignored or even displaced. I'd come to appreciate how historical memory isn't just something found in classrooms, and the past isn't something arcane. Every day, the past is shaped and reshaped into what becomes our shared memories. In turn, these shared memories, they actually shape our perception of the world we inhabit. Historical memories, they then become the basis of our collective identities. They're everywhere we look, even when we're not actively searching. Sitting around the table with relatives, watching movies, walking past monuments in the park, we're surrounded by messages about the past. We might like to think that these memories are neutral, but it's like what historian Peter Novick told us. Objectivity? Well, that is a noble dream. This isn't just some abstract lesson. We invest so much emotion in our stories, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But our stories may not tell the whole truth. They may obscure and conceal as much as they expose and reveal. The stories that give one community pride and meaning, or a sense of purpose, those stories may come at the expense of another interpretation of the past, another conclusion reached about the meaning of an event or an episode. One story's heroes may actually be recast as the villains in a different telling. This can become problematic, to say the least. The starkest example of this I ever faced in my life was in the summer of 2008, when I visited a village outside of Bethlehem in the West Bank. I was sitting in the home of a Palestinian family. I listened to their stories of 1948. They described these historical events using the Arabic word, Nakba, the catastrophe. I had gone to the West Bank to learn. I heard stories throughout my life about Jewish history, the Middle East, and Israel, But there were so many more stories that I never heard. Or at least I had never heard them told with passion and conviction, with longing and aspiration. These other stories, the Palestinian stories that I knew existed, yet somehow seemed inaccessible, were bound up in the memories that I absorbed throughout my life. Even if I couldn't remember when or where I had been exposed to these versions of the past. Palestinian stories are entwined with the stories told about Israel and Jewish history, even if, for me at least, they weren't always granted the space they deserved to be told on their own terms. I left the West Bank incapable of unhearing these stories. Long after, years after, I continued to grapple with them, to be moved by them, and to find humanity within them. They would complement and compete with other perspectives that I heard about Israel, about Palestine, about the Middle East. The Palestinian historian Rashid Khalidi refers to these stories of Israel and Palestine as entwined history. And he tells us that they have so much in common, yet are so different in so many ways. These histories of Israel and Palestine live side by side, they're parallel histories. This is the conclusion reached by Sami Adwan, Dan Bar On, and Ayal Naveh, who wrote an innovative history textbook in Hebrew and Arabic, laid out in such a way that the same places, people, and events, with their divergent and at times contradictory interpretations, are juxtaposed against each other on either side of the page. In this way, the reader of their textbook. Is presented with two ways of knowing, two ways of seeing the past, two ways of being in Israel and Palestine. This may not seem like a radical act to write a history textbook with parallel histories side by side, but to legitimize the perspectives of the other, to normalize rather than reject, well, that is a much needed act in finding humanity and establishing trust between these two communities. This requires encountering, listening, connecting, experiencing the frustration of this process, and working through the discomfort that comes with it. We're going to hear from Nizar Farsakh. Nizar is going to share his stories of participating in dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians, of negotiating and advocating of making his perspective known and experiencing revelations when speaking to his Jewish counterparts in various contexts. We'll learn about his personal story, the story of a Palestinian in diaspora, and the work that he does to bring people together even when they're emotionally, intellectually, or politically worlds apart. So let's hear from Nizar. Yalla, let's learn together.
0: My name is Nizar Farsah. I was born in Dubai in 1974 to a Palestinian father and an Italian mother. My father uh, was from a town in the West Bank called Birzeit, which is just north of Ramallah, and happened to be working in Jordan uh, in 1967, so when the war happened in '67, the Six-Day War. Uh, the Israelis didn't let him go back to the, his hometown, visit So I grew up in Dubai on my father's stories of Palestine, of uh, how wonderful it is, how we, they were farmers, so they had uh, you know grapes and vineyards and olives, of course. So it was always a beautiful place with beautiful things and his longing to go back. And how, when he proposed to my mom, he told her, listen, I'm Palestinian. We're always in trouble so i don't promise you roses and uh, my mom used to always joke say i was young and naive and didn't know what i was getting into had i known um so yeah so I, I grew up on his stories and his faith that he was going back i remember he would be with like we would have people over for lunch or dinner his friends and you would talk about going back and they would tell him, you're crazy. You were part of the resistance. You were part of Fatah. You're blacklisted in three countries. You're the last person to ever be able to, to go back. That was in the 80s. But he still believed. And indeed, in the, in the mid-90s, he did manage to go back. Uh, and he went back with an Italian passport. Through my mother, we all got Italian passports. And that was his ticket. And he would enter as a tourist to his own village. It became personal, in fact, when I became 17, I was 17, 18 in the Emirates, you don't get citizenship by being born there. They don't have that kind of law. In fact, there is discrimination in general for the locals and you always need to renew your work visa. So I was on my father's work visa and my father told me when I was a teenager, you know, when, when you hit 18, I can keep you on my work visa. You're going to need to find a job. And it struck me, it's like I was born and raised here. Like, how, why would I need to have a reason for staying after I'm 18? And the the real slap in the face that was really shocking for me was my cousin, Na'il, who also was born and raised in Dubai, went to Iowa to study, fell in love with a white Iowan girl. uh, And when he wanted to come to Dubai to, to have the wedding, his, fiance who didn't know where Dubai lies on the map she got a 10-year multi-entry visa and uh, my cousin who was born and raised in Dubai couldn't get a visa that sense of, of vulnerability and statelessness and when you're stateless like you don't have a back right so that anxiety and the constant worry of having you know be entrepreneurial, to get as good an education as possible, because these are things that you can take with you uh, should you ever get kicked out from wherever.
1: Nazar would eventually move to the West Bank, living in Berzadeh for a number of years. Let's listen to him describe the West Bank, the sounds and sights of the street, and also the work that he did during those years.
0: I think of like the bustling streets of Ramallah and Bireh. Uh, the market, when you walk there, there's like a, an open-air bakery next to the uh, bus station. And the guy, the baker, is an ex-political prisoner. Uh, <laughs> and there's an old lady from a village who's selling sage. And of course, it's it's uh, crowded and there's traffic and there's a lot of noise and plenty of kids. Like there's a higher proportion of kids than anywhere when you go, uh, which is nice, but also messy. Uh, nobody respects traffic <laughs> but also like they're actually I mean Palestinians get offended but we are really a very small place so our towns are just towns they're not really cities but we call them cities so like Birzeir is like 5,000 people and it's called a city so like we have our mayor go to the international conference of mayors and he's sitting next to the mayor of Sao Paulo or like Mexico City right and they ask him how many people are in your <laughs> what's the population of Brazil? Five thousand? Really? <laughs> Which hotel are they staying at? In Palestine, I worked in a NGO in, in Bethlehem, a research center that where I monitored Israeli settlement activities and uh, would put reports about them. And then I was part of the Palestinian negotiating team from two thousand three until t- two thousand eight. And there my job was to advise Palestinian negotiators and support them in their negotiations with Israel. And because Palestine is a very small place, I actually got to work with the president, with the prime minister, with various ministries. So it was very interesting and very engaging work, but also very frustrating because I could see how much more powerful the Israelis were. And if they didn't want to do something, they would just not do it while we had very little cards. Uh, So I realized that the negotiation is not going to go very far. But what broke my heart was the internal fighting between the two Palestinian factions, Fatah and Hamas, in 2007. I had naively thought that Palestinian blood was a was a red line, and was completely unprepared and completely shocked by what I witnessed. And it made me feel that uh, not only was it disgusting and shocking, I came to the conclusion that I don't know what I'm doing here. Like there's nothing useful I, I could think of to do. Uh, so I left. I left disappointed and disillusioned and heartbroken.
1: Nazar eventually made his way to the United States, where he would study at the Harvard Kennedy School. While at the Kennedy School, he discovered that he had particular talents that lent themselves to the work that he does now as a trainer.
0: Of course, my upbringing being from parents from two different cultures and two different religions. At a very early age, I was sensitized to a multicultural world, right? So when I go to Italy, I would realize that my cousins have a different set of values and what's right and wrong there is different from what's right and wrong in the Arab world. But also the, the, how ignorance is at the source of a lot of those challenges. That is, when I go to Italy, my cousins had all sorts of, Stupid ideas of what Arabs are about, right? And um, they genuinely thought that we live on a on on a sea of oil and that we have we ride camels and what have you. And conversely, when I would go back to Dubai, my friends in in school would think, "Oh, the West hates us. The West is jealous of our religion because we have the best religion." And I was like, "Oh, uh, not really. We don't even figure <laughs> on their map. Like the most they think of us is just." camel-riding, oil-drinking, white-robe-wearing idiots. That's what they think of us. They're not threatened by us at all. Being witness to the falsehoods that people live in and understanding that that's the source of why they think what they think, because the information they have is erroneous because they don't know the other, right? So I was sensitized to that at a very early age. And then Going to Palestine and experiencing the difference between my father's Palestine, the stories, and the Palestine that was actually there, not only did Palestine move 50 years onwards from my father's Palestine, right? It was 50 years earlier, but it was just different, not better or worse, just different. And then my interactions with Israelis and and Jews, I had all sorts of misconceptions, the first of which that they are a monolith the Jews are one thing and they think all the same. I kept having these encounters of dissonance where my assumptions were being challenged. And the final one I'll share and why I do this work is when I was part of the negotiating team, I was responsible for all border-related issues. My Israeli counterpart was uh, an Israeli settler called Danny Tirza. Uh, he was an archaeologist, historian, pretty famous, and with encyclopedic knowledge of, of the land, right? But of course, he was my nemesis. Not only was he a religious Zionist who believed that Arabs had no reason to be here, he, he's willing to tolerate us, but he definitely didn't think that we had rights to be there, definitely not equal rights. And on top of that, he was an actual settler who lived in a settlement that was east of East Jerusalem. So, like, he was living in one of the more problematic settlements. So I had many reasons to hate him. After a few negotiation rounds, there was a round where we realized that there was an area that we're negotiating about and said, it's probably better if we go there physically and talk through the landscape because it was a like a hill and a valley. So we went there and we're at the bottom of the hill and looking at the hill. And Danny goes on and on about that hill and the town that's there and how the, the name is originally Hebrew that got Arabized, and the mayor in the next village, his name is so-and-so, and his family name comes from this clan, and this clan used to be a Jewish clan that had to convert to Islam, and so on and so forth. And I was like fascinated because my master's dissertation was actually about that hill specifically. So I actually know it very well, right? I was like, wow, Danny and I are looking at the same hill but we're seeing two very different things. And it was then that it dawned to me, my job as a negotiator, if I want an agreement from Danny, I don't need him to believe me and adopt my narrative and my history. That's not necessary. I need him to sign an agreement. I need him to come to an agreement with me on an arrangement where I can get the fully independent Palestinian state where I'm completely free and I don't have any Israeli soldiers telling me where I can or cannot go in control of my resources and an agreement that for him provides security for Israel any way he sees security. I need Danny to be happy with the security arrangements. They need to make him feel safe. What I think this is too much or too little is irrelevant because I need him to agree and likewise, I'm going to need to make sure that he understands what independence means to me, what level of freedom, what level of of independence and sovereignty looks like that would satisfy me for me to sign the agreement that has the security measures that he wants, right? And that's when I I had that epiphany of the importance of appreciating narratives that these are conduits and windows that allow you to understand what is important to another person, and therefore what is it that they are willing to commit to.
1: So much of what Nazar shared is about building bridges by appreciating narratives. The narratives that we internalize motivate so much of what we do in the world, but they can become islands separating us from others. But Nazar has some advice for what we can all do to bridge the divide between narratives. Let's learn from him not just about building bridges, but about actually crossing them. Because these connections are about movement. The movement we make from our starting points in life to our end point. End that can promote understanding, compassion, and dignity.
0: Number one is definitely go there. If you cannot go there, meet Palestinians and meet Arabs and meet pro-Palestinians as well. And know that if you want to learn, you're going to hear stuff that you don't like hearing. So long as you're clear about your purpose that I want to understand, I don't want to agree, I want to just understand and get the opportunity to hear something new and learn something new, know that you are going to get hurt, you are going to get offended, and that is fine. Content yourself with the fact that if you felt offended, if you felt hurt, then you probably heard something that you didn't hear before that allows you to understand better what's happening. Uh, and that's true of all sides, right? So, uh, Palestinians have all sorts of biases and misconceptions about Israelis and Jews. And that's just because of ignorance, because they don't know any, right? So I started realizing that the Israelis are not a monolith because I actually encountered Israelis and Jews. But the best ones are, in fact, friends and people and relatives. So if you have a friend or a relative that knows a Palestinian friend or relative, Just talk to them, right? And ask them, what is it like? And just be ready. Because if you go there expecting them to be all lovey-dovey, you are going to get disappointed. (laughs) But if you go there knowing that it's going to be sweat and tears, like you go to the gym, right? No pain, no gain. Know that you're going there with an open mind and an open heart because you want to learn.
1: When it comes to intergroup dialogue and encounters, revelations occur. They may not be easy, and having them might be frustrating. Revelations may necessitate unlearning some of the narratives that we actually hold dear. But this is the space where growth is possible, the type of growth that dispels myths and brings into focus the full humanity of the other. So with that in mind, what are some realizations What are some revelations that we can all have to ensure Palestinians are recognized as more than a monolithic group, more than just the other?
0: You realize that Palestinians are complex people, they are conservative, and some of them are secular. They're full of contradictions. There are people who believe that there is no God, and there are people who are nationalistic but also conservative, right? And even me, like, so I say I believe in God, I just have issues with him. So I always thought of myself as a secular Palestinian. But then when ISIS happened, I found myself so provoked. I was so, I couldn't sleep. Like, I had to email my friends. Like, what the hell? Who do they think they are? Like, I, I realize I'm more Muslim than I realized. right? So definitely, a lot of your identity has to do with which identity is, you think is getting threatened. A uh, hard truth is just becoming present to the fact that Human beings are very complex and very diverse. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because that allows for a lot of opportunities and is very rich. But at the same time, it breaks your beautiful, pristine picture of a very clear and not uh, uh, mucky world. Things are not black and white. People have horrible things about them and have beautiful things about them at the same time. There is no good guy, bad guy. And that sucks because it makes the world very unsimple and it makes it extremely difficult to say who's right and who's wrong. So that bubble is going to get burst. It's just easier to believe in a simple world where there's good and there's bad and I'm on the good side because dealing with a complex world is very anxiety provoking because you never know what's the right answer. The hard truth is that the Palestinians are going nowhere and the Israelis are going nowhere. And we're going to have to do our own homework of uh, you know, swallowing that bitter pill and realizing what are the things that we are willing to let go of so that we maintain what is essential in who we are. What kind of people do we want to be? Do we want to be better than our grandfathers and leave a legacy to our grandchildren that is better than the legacy that our grandfathers left us? Or do we want to vindicate our grandfathers and prove that our grandfathers were right all along?
1: Hard truths are illuminating, even if they're disruptive. Let's listen to Nazar tell a story about a hard truth he encountered and the power of listening and being in communication with the other.
0: I had a friend who was uh, at the Kennedy School. He was um, a Jewish-Israeli, of course. His family actually, like, originally, they were from Eastern Europe. They escaped the pogroms and went to Venezuela. And then from Venezuela, half of the family did aliyah and immigrated to Israel. So he was part of that part, right? But he still had a grandmother in Venezuela. And he was part of uh, Meretz, a party that's uh, secular and very pro-peace. They're far left. And I had all sorts of issues with him in uh, the Kennedy School because... He was one of those lefties who would say, oh, uh, I'm on your side, I'm an ally. I hate Bibi Netanyahu. And it's like, as if I owed him anything. It's like, Danny, this is another Danny. The the first Danny was a negotiator. This is Danny Bahar, who was at the Kennedy School, the Venezuelan Danny. It's like, I don't owe you anything because you espouse uh, liberal values. Like, kudos to you that you have these liberal values, but I don't need to reciprocate just because you think Palestinians are human beings, okay? Mm. (laughs) I would get really annoyed with his rhetoric. You know, when did he really get to me? When he told me about his grandmother. One day, like after I think like a year, he told me, you know, Nizar, I want to tell you something. Yesterday, I just got off the phone with my grandmother in Venezuela, and this was during Cesar Chavez, and there were issues there. And he said, I don't know if you know, but there have been several anti-Semitic attacks and threats in, in Venezuela. And last night, my grandmother called me because she was scared. She said, there are people banging on the door and I'm afraid that they're coming to get me. I was like, oh my God, right? Because I I became present to what anti-Semitism is like. Like, yeah, Jews live this kind of life. You never feel safe. We're gonna need to find a solution where a Jewish person not only feels safe, but feels safe to be completely Jewish, whether secular or religious. That is the fact that it's only in the last decade that Jewish Americans felt safe wearing the kippah in public, right? Like that's the thing, right? To have to change your name, like my mentor, Marshall Gantz, he's a son of a rabbi. His name is actually Moshe, but he couldn't be Moshe in Bakersfield in the 60s. So then the Marshall, to not be able to be named the name that you want of your prophet, right? That, that's a reality experience and that's a reality Persians also experience. So understanding that, no, I'm not gonna, We're not gonna get the romantic Palestine of old. It's gonna be different. And that's just the way it is. There is no complete
1: justice. Nizar has shared so much already about his life, the people that he's worked with, the revelations that he's had about himself and about others. So what are his final thoughts for us? What other lessons should we take with us as we continue to reflect upon and wrestle with the narratives around us, the ones we gravitate towards, and those that challenge and might even push back against our internalized truths.
0: Understanding that there is no good and bad, that there is no black and white, everything is complex, and that's just the way the world is. All of us are racist, all of us have biases, And our job is to acknowledge and learn about our biases and work on them, to just be aware of the self-righteousness that we as human beings, because we are pain averse and pleasure seeking and we hate uncertainty, we are on the side of telling ourselves stories that we are the good guys. But ultimately, there are things that we are doing now that are imposing on others. Understanding that you're never going to get there, that it's a process, that it's a continuous voyage of trying to improve the human condition. And we're never really there. Just like trying to make this a more perfect union is the same thing. We're never really there. It's always a struggle. Freedom is always a struggle. Equality is always a struggle. You're not doing anybody a favor and you're not yeah, being charitable by addressing racism and by addressing sexism and all of these things, you are just doing your work. Doing good in this world is is the rent you pay for being on this
1: earth. Listening to Nazar, I'm reminded of Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher. So much of Buber's understanding of Judaism, of philosophy, of relations with Palestinians, revolves around dialogue. Dialogue for Buber isn't just about having conversations. It's not merely a matter of sitting and talking. For Buber, it's a profound act of reciprocal openness to the full and completeness of the other. Without dialogue, it becomes easy to perceive the other in reductive terms. It becomes convenient to demonize or dismiss. But when we're engaged in the reciprocal act of receiving the other on their own terms as they wish to be seen we're able to transcend inaccuracies and arrive at a place of mutual and shared humanity. Nizar works to do this. He shares his stories. He's open to engaging with Israelis, to speaking with Jews, to serving as a conduit for the types of exchange that are built upon hard work, built upon humility, honesty, and confronting the best and the worst of one's own community and the communities on the other side of a political divide. So as I reflect on this conversation that I had with Nazar, I'm left with these questions. What are the borders that we're going to cross next? What bridges can we continue to build? Who will we look at, listen to, and learn from next? A special thanks to Nazar Farsakh. It was a treat talking to you. Thanks always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering joy and conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song, which was not heard in this episode. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. This episode featured a version of Adnan Odeh's song, Yama Mawil al performed by Maria Trogolo on the qanun. We also had the pleasure of including the music of Basil Zayed throughout the episode. Basil is a singer, composer, and oud master. To learn more about his music, visit basilzayed.com. Our episodes typically feature music from the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music's on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visit our website, Joy and Conversation we'll see you next time.